Welcome to the Not For The Average podcast. This is your host, Trent Leishan. Today, we go chasing rainbows. Now, when I say that, I mean talking sales mastery with Jason Disbra. Jason is the CEO multinational clients at Aon. Aon is a publicly listed international insurance and risk consulting firm with over 50,000 employees and revenue in excess of $10 billion per annum. He was appointed as the CEO of Multinational Accounts in September 2017. In this role, he's responsible for Aon's multinational client strategy outside of the United States. Prior to this role, Jason was the managing director Aon Global and Corporate and was responsible for the leadership of Aon's large client businesses in Australia for three years. Some of the areas that Jason and I dig into and explore are his four Ps for navigating and influencing the C-suite, how to leverage and scale best-selling and relationship-building practices throughout your entire organization. We delve into the true power of mentorship and coaching when it's done right. We also touch on how to use feedback and debriefing to build relationships and win back clients. And we also go deep into how to unlock more potential through practicing mindfulness and being present in your daily interactions. And more, let's go chase some rainbows. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Trent. Great to, uh, great to be here. Now, you are in a beautiful part of the world for our listeners. You're in the beautiful Briz Vegas. How are things up in Brisbane? Things are good, Trent. Thanks. I've, I've only been back in Brisbane for uh, the last uh, two months because prior to that, I'd spent almost uh, four years in London working for my company uh, in London. So it's great to be back in warm weather and in a, an environment where there are low COVID rates and uh, things are relatively normal up here in Queensland. So it's great to be back, Trent. Getting back to normality or the new normal. Now, you are a the CEO of Aon, multinational client. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your role and what you do at Aon? Sure, Trent. No problem. So, um, so prior to Aon, uh, you know, I, I come. I have a mathematical background, a risk analysis background, and prior to coming to Aon, I had my own consulting business with another partner, where we did a lot of risk finance consulting work, a lot of captive management work, quite a bespoke area of risk management and insurance in in the corporate sector, and uh, we sold our business to Aon back in uh, two thousand. Um, so I've been with the company now for uh, for over twenty years. Uh, and my role in more recent times in the last five years, um, I previously used to run our large client business in Australia, um, managing a, a group of you know, three, 400 professionals across the country. But uh, now in more recent times, I, I run our multinational client segment. So if you think of Aon as a global company, we have you know, 55,000 employees across 150 countries. We have three types of clients, small, medium, and then what we call very large or complex, which is called multinational. And I run the multinational segment for Aon globally. Uh, I have a co-CEO who runs the US part of our multinational business. And I run everything outside the US, which we call the international part of our business. So I work across all different types of countries and time zones, bringing Aon's capabilities to our largest multinational clients around the world across all industry sectors. So in a nutshell, Trent, that's, that's my role. Brilliant. Jason, do you see yourself as a CEO or a salesperson? A good question, Trent. I'd actually say first and foremost as a salesperson. Um, and I say that with quite a bit of pride because I think that any successful business person needs to be able to effectively sell their offering. And so, you know, in the early part of my career, I was taught how to sell and, and learn how to sell sort of on the road in front of clients as I went. And, and I think really you then become a business leader as a result of your ability to be able to sell. So I think you'll find, and I see this in a lot of CEOs that I deal with, is that a lot of them have outstanding skills uh, around selling because that's really where a lot of them have, uh, have learned the craft of communication, uh, of being able to lead people, you know, really trying to take teams together to, to go and win, win, win business um, through selling. So I'd say, Trent, definitely, first and foremost, uh, I see myself as a salesperson. Some people say that could be considered a dirty word, sales, but I say it with pride because I think it's a, a critical business skill that, that all business leaders need in this current day and age. I'm pleased to hear that 
Jason. Very pleased to hear that. So why do you have that sense of pride? Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's an important uh, quality to be able to articulate what you believe in and what you're providing to, uh, to clients. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's two different types of people that sit in a business, really. There's, there's hunters. There's those people that go out and, and find the business and create opportunities to grow the business. And then, of course, there's, there's farmers that look after the business, cultivate it once you've won it, um, and deliver the, the value proposition and the service. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I see myself at the front end of the business really, really trying to, to sell and grow uh, our capabilities and our offering to our clients. Don't get me wrong, farmers are just as critical. We need those in our business. But I think you find most business leaders try to get a balance of both farming and hunting in their day-to-day activities. But my personal preference is to be out selling and engaging new clients and, and trying to bring more of our capabilities to, to new relationships, Trent. Gotcha. That link between selling, hunting, cultivating is all underpinned by relationships, isn't it? It certainly is. And relationships, I think, really are really the, the critical component of all of this because without those relationships, either if, if it's in an early stage of building um, a, a connection with a new client or maintaining an existing client, the business to this day and age, I think, still comes down to relationships between humans and how we interact, respect, collaborate and work with each other. I have to, heard you reference the term relationship equity. What do you mean by that specifically? Yeah, so, so relationship equity trend is something that I, I've always believed in. What I mean by re- relationship equity is you have to put something into a relationship and make an effort, so put equity into a relationship before you can really get anything back. Mm. And I think what, what a lot of people miss in, in, in you know, current normal business practices is if you reach out to someone and help them uh, and you're in service to them and trying to assist them really for, for no fee, for no cost, but just to try and assist, do a favour, give them some guidance, make an introduction. Um, I'm a big believer that as you build that equity with that relationship, those people, those business people at some point in time will come back to you uh, and they will um, effectively repay um, by providing you with an opportunity. And I've seen this happen, uh, mm. Trent, for many, many years in my career where you know, someone reaches out and says, hey, Jason, I want you to meet this particular uh, business person. I meet them. We create a connection. Uh, it's a genuine connection. You know, you start to build up a, a good relationship. Um, and then opportunities effectively then start to perpetuate from their trend. So what I've also found is if with a lot of the su- successful companies I work with, when you deal with founders or CEOs, a lot of them have built their success through that concept of relationship equity over time, mm-hmm. you know, putting energy and effort into their relationships with clients or prospects, which then you know, effectively builds momentum and opportunities into the future. I, the other way you could think about relationship equity is it's really karma. You know, if you, <laughs> you put out a, you know, a, a, a genuine offer of help to someone in some way, shape or form, most people will, will come back and repay you uh, in some kind of way. And you don't always ex- expect the repayment. Um, but as I say, a lot of the times it just naturally occurs because you like dealing with that other person and you've built, you've built enough relationship equity to be able to, to do that trend. Hang on, Jase. Now, our, one of our most popular programs at Boom Sales is the Relationship Diamond. And we've just rolled that out all over Australia, companies big and small, gets rave reviews. There's four quadrants to the Relationship Diamond. I might change the name of that program to Relationship Karma. What do you think? Well, I think that's what it's called. <laughs> I think that's what it's <laughs> called. karmic forces. Um, I, I really agree with that. And I think they're sort of putting the skin into the relationship you know, we call it reciprocity, which is, you know, back scratching, but it's moving away from that transactional mindset, isn't it? To, to more of a contribution, your ability to build those relationships over, you know, in your CV, very decorated CV, I mind you, you would have seen the, the insurance world change on no doubt over that period. Yeah. In the way that we build relationships and the way that we actually grow and hunt and cultivate. I have, I've seen enormous change. You know, I've seen the impact of digitization. Um, I've seen the impact of, uh, you know, effectively of, of high-speed computing and how that helps clients make more effective decisions. But one thing that hasn't changed over those 27 years is the fact that people want to deal with people. 
and business is done through interacting with people and people value relationships. Um, and probably the most significant change I've seen in those 27 years is in the last 12 months because you know, I used to fly regularly to different parts of the world to engage clients or potential clients to build relationships um, and either grow an existing relationship or to create a new one. With what's happened with COVID-19, all of a sudden we are all in a virtual world. So we have to continue to build our relationships virtually. Mm. Uh, and I think this has become very difficult for some people because, you know, a lot of the times it's the things that are said, you know, in, in, the, in the waiting room, it's the things that are said whilst the coffee's being served, while we're at the water cooler, while we're in the lift well on the way uh, down and, and the client saying goodbye to us. Mm-hmm. It's those um, impromptu interactions that enhance relationships. And I think the biggest change I've seen in the 27 years I've been in my industry is in the last 12 months, we, 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 just, we don't have that dimension to deal with. So how um, organisations provide their teams with skills to be able to engage their clients effectively in a virtual world I think is probably going to be one of the greatest challenges moving forward where people are getting very tired um, and fatigued through Zoom calls and WebEx calls and and interacting in a virtual way. So that would probably be the most significant change that I've seen is in the last 12 months, you know, we've accelerated digitisation in that time period more than probably what we could have done in the next 10 years without COVID. But it's the world we live in now, Trent. And for a salesperson... Now, it creates some challenges because you've got to build up your relationship equity in a virtual environment and uh, means you've got to have more regular contact. The interactions have to be you know, very sincere and you have to be totally present on a, uh, on, on a Zoom call with video on, as you know, because you're, you're watching and monitoring each other closely, carefully. Um, and if you don't create that connection effectively, then you'll, you'll miss out on the opportunity. So that's unquestionably the most significant change I've seen trend is in the last 12 months with this, this rapid pivot to digitization. We want to dig in here. So you're saying the way that, that that forced um, innovation, so to speak, through COVID has accelerated our innovation. Necessity is the mother of invention. So we have found new ways to communicate that in itself is an opportunity, but people need to actually get across how we're coming across when we're engaging people over a screen. Absolutely. No, it's very critical trend. So I've been involved in, so in my role, you know, I'm often putting together multinational teams across Aon to pitch to a multinational prospect, you know, to a potential client. And we're often pitching to, let's say, half a dozen individuals in various parts of the world of different nationalities. And I've got a team with me from Aon um, that, that come from those similar geographies and, 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 and have those sort of similar backgrounds. What I've found is the real challenge is you've got to let people see who you are um, and how you feel, how you look, how you sound. And often the mistake we make is we say, oh, hold on, I'll just share a document with you. And we put the document share up on the screen and everyone's faces go into these small um, basic cue cards or in some instances you miss them depending on the technology you're using. You know, for example, you know, web, web, uh, sorry, Microsoft Teams is very different to WebEx. It has different functionality. So what we found is you minimise sharing um, and you try to optimise the, um, the visuals on the WebEx as much as you can so people can see each other. You know, the, the number one trick for us is don't just share documents and, and all of a sudden lose people on the screen because you won't connect as effectively as you could if, you, you know, if it was like it was in a personal meeting. So that's just a little trick that we yeah. try to apply to, um, to really optimise our engagement with, uh, with our clients. The key word being connection. You know, Pretty how cool. Do we, how do we connect, which is obviously the law of rapport, you know, building trust, building connection, um, helping people feel comfortable with you when they've just met you, you know, doing that uh, through a, a device or through a screen is challenging. Well, it's a challenging face-to-face for a lot of people too, Jason. Navigating the C-suite, Jason, our environment's changed. So the way that we navigate, you know, a big, big believer in, your success in life is in direct proportion to your ability to navigate relationships. So important in business, you know, um, creating relationship equity that we've alluded to or relationship karma. Love it. What are some of your go-to strategies for navigating the C-suite or, or stakeholder engagement? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's, it, this is always delicate. And, and I think, you know, in reality, when, when I talk to our teams around the world about winning, you know, I effectively talk about 
effectively the four P's. So the first one is the product, which, and by that I mean value proposition. So what is the offer that we've customized to effectively appeal to the client? So the first P is, is, is product or value proposition. The second one is price. Um, but to be totally honest, it's the least relevant. You get the value proposition right and the two other P's I'm about to talk to, and I think the price becomes the least relevant. It's always a common excuse when we lose that we say that we were the highest price. And if you did a debrief with that yes. client, yes. you'd probably find price is not relevant, um, particularly if you know how to sell for value. The third component is effectively around the politics. And then the fourth component is around the pitch. It's around the final presentation. So I talk about those four P's. But if we drill into the third P, which is politics, Trent, um, to me, this component is absolutely critical. And if you don't understand who are the people that you're ultimately selling to and who are the decision makers that who are sometimes not in the room and you haven't done your research around that, you know, you can come up with the best combination of four Ps that you possibly could produce and deliver a winning presentation. And we think we've done that on numerous occasions and we don't win. And we discover that our C-suite engagement around a particular person that may be on the board or maybe in the executive committee, um, we've missed someone and they were fundamental to endorsing or approving or agreeing with the recommendation. Mm -hmm. And so the research you put into understanding the audience and the influences around it, you know, when you effectively, uh, and we call this red sheeting in our organisation, I know lots of other people give it different terms, but when we, when we red sheet these processes, understanding the stakeholders, in particular the C-suite, becomes absolutely critical and engaging them in the, in the right way. So we found really step one is let's understand the C-suite stakeholders that we're dealing with here. Are they going to be involved in the process? If so, how do we engage them? Um, you know, in some instances, some of our advisory board members may know them or their board members and vice versa. That's often a useful tactic to use. Uh, and then the next question is, how do we engage them? Uh, and, you know, we often ask to meet them. So if we're dealing with uh, the chief risk officer or um, the financial controller or the treasurer, we'll often ask them, can we meet your CFO? Can we meet your CEO? Can we understand what's concerning them around what we're offering and how we can be more relevant? So what I've found from experience is if you don't invest time and effort in researching who the C-suite are and mm. the key stakeholders around them, then you can fail badly on what I call the third P. So, you know, obviously product or value proposition, price, politics, and pitch. If you don't get the third P right and you sit back and realise you've lost and scratch your head, it's often because we've failed around that political component and we haven't engaged the C-suite effectively um, and we've forgotten someone along the way. And I've seen that happen many, many times. We always, we always come in at the end of a, at the end of a proposal process, Trent, and at Aon, we are religious about learning around why we have not been successful. And the saying I always use with the team is, don't get furious about the outcome, get curious and get out there and do a debrief to understand why we lost. But what's really interesting is we actually even debrief when we win. And the reason before that is, around that is, oftentimes when you win, you've got to make sure you didn't win by accident. You've got to make sure that the winning streak you're on is not being caused by, you know, perhaps bad luck from the other competitors. So, yeah, understanding through debriefs what you've done well, what you need to improve is, is really critical. And we often find that if you do a good debrief with the right people, it'll give us the learnings if we didn't win around who we didn't engage. And then we hit the reset button from the debrief um, position. And then we go back to that prospect and re-engage them. And then we start again. And it might take us two or three years, Trent. Um, but I've, been, I've seen instances where we debrief after a, an unsuccessful pitch and the client three years later appoints us and says, did you realise that you, you actually started winning this process when you re-engaged just after you lost um, after that RFP several years ago? So yes, yes, yes. yes. You've on a key point, Trent, C-suite engagement is just, just critical. Well, hallelujah, brother. I want to take it back a little bit. That couple of those couple of points here are actually really, really, really valuable. So your four P's, product, which is your value proposition, your price, your politics, and your pitch. Could not agree more. That politics P that you mentioned was the most important. In our world, um, we call that navigating the arc of influence. 
which is actually navigating stakeholders. I think that is so, so important. So you guys are on the on the trail there, you know, investing in the right people, building relationships with the right people. You know, I think from my perspective, looking at different companies, and they could be doing a tender process as an example, where they don't get access to the right people. Now we know nine times out of ten, that's probably going to end in frustration. Um, so tactics to get in front of the right people when there's a closed process, that'd be a whole other podcast we could talk about. So, yep. so important in complete alignment with you there and understanding that, you know, who's involved in the buying process. Sometimes we don't even ask. We're not asking, you know, who is the decision maker? Now, we're not asking masterful questions around, which, you know, a big part of the boom vernacular is actually asking the right questions to the right people. And if the right people aren't in the room, you need to find a way to access that, those people. Um, and your last point there, um, just moving forward a little bit, which is around the debrief. When you lose, debrief when you win. That sounds like a high-performance culture. To me, that's what, that's what a high-performance culture, that's, a, that's a, um, I guess, evidence, evidence of a high-performance culture, the fact that you are using feedback. Um, you said, don't get furious, get curious. You've talked about the relationship equity. If I'm not, if I don't have that relationship equity mindset, then I'm going to see my client as a transaction. I'm going to move on to the next one. I don't need feedback, Jason. They're idiots. Obviously, yeah, it was always price, wasn't it? We're never in the hunt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the feedback you get. But the reality is, there's politics at play. You haven't engaged the right stakeholder. You haven't invested in the right influencer. Um, you don't even know who the decision maker is. So, of course, it's going to default to price. You know, I think that's a really, really great takeaway. Now, when you think about B2B selling versus B2C selling, there are differences, but you've got to be having the right conversation with the right stakeholder or the right customer, you know, in any environment. You know, and that, to me, is understanding how to navigate, but also valuing your time and valuing the time of the people that you're engaging. You know, um, and the best of the best, you know, you talked about it earlier, Jason, you know, that the CEOs, the really high level operators that I work with at CEO level, they all consider themselves salespeople, although it's not in their title, but like you alluded to, they understand communication. They've learned their craft in being able to learn how to engage people the right way. And that's why they're successful. Um, so yeah, really, really great takeaways. Um, just coming back to that high performance culture though, Jason, what is culture? Yeah, great, great question. Trent, so thinking about culture, if, if you wanted me to, to say it in one word, I'd say DNA. Culture is the DNA of the company. DNA. Mm. Correct. So it's, it's effectively the, it's the lifeblood of how all of your people walk and talk and behave. And um, at Aon, you know, our, our culture is around one concept. It's called Aon United. And if you have a look at the history of our organisation, you know, we came from a combination of many different companies around the world joining to become one brand, to become Aon. And we had different disciplines. You know, so we were, we were an insurance broker and risk management consultant. But at the same time, we provide retirement and investment advice um, to superannuation, pension funds, uh, individuals. We provide health and benefits advice. And we also provide reinsurance advice to some insurance companies and data and analytics consulting so we were almost like five capabilities Trent and we were operating under almost five separate banners but the reality is when we're dealing with large clients they really just want you to show up as Aon they want, don't want you to show up as different brands and different teams they don't want this silo um, experience either so clients are looking for an integrated offering that, that's seamless dealing with one company so we collapsed our brands we moved to one brand um, and then at the time of going into a very famous um, sports sponsorship, because you may recall uh, Aon was the principal sponsor for Man United for quite some time and was still very heavily involved in the club. We used our Manchester United relationship as the catalyst for accelerating the concept of Aon United. And so um, within the company, you know, the view that that, that that external sponsorship actually had more value for us on the internal culture of where we were trying to take our people than it actually did to the external world around putting our brand on the shirt. Now that sure helped because prior to that, you know, people would say, what do you do? I work for Aon. Or what do they do? Now they'll say, what do you do? I work for Aon. And they'll say, oh, you're the sponsor of Manchester United. Yeah. And then, oh, by the way, tell us a little bit more about what you do. So it's created that brand recognition, but what the, the concept of 
Aon United did for us internally is it rapidly accelerated this concept of working together. And then in the last six, seven years, Trent, we have basically put our top, I think it's now close to 3,000 leaders through a very intense course called Leading Aon United. So how do you lead your people in bringing forward all the capabilities of the company to show up as one team and one culture in an integrated way? Because in our business, it's complex. We operate all around the world. We've got, you know, you've got many P&Ls, many different teams. Um, how you get everyone to work and play together cohesively for the common good of the client, not too many organisations have cracked the code on that. So you know, from our perspective, you know, Aon United is our DNA. And as at the moment, we're going through a very, very significant merger with uh, another organisation. And Aon United will become a very, very important component um, of the integration around the, the, the culture, the DNA, the behaviour of the people that, that we, we, we expect and we would like to see as we put the two organisations together moving forward. So to me, Trent, culture's everything. And at the organisation that I work with, um, it's Aon United. You can probably tell I'm passionate about it because I know it. it's the cultural difference between us and our competitors out there in the marketplace. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that, that cultural difference of my organisation. So I, I just think that without culture, you know, you really just marginalise your capability and you, 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 look like, you look like the rest of the pack. So it's critical from my perspective to get your culture right, Trent. That's a good way of describing it, actually. Without culture, you marginalise your capability. Interesting. You're also a Manchester United fan, I hear, Jason. I, I am. I am, Trent. Was yes, that I'm... just coincidental? Well, it's, it, it's, it's not coincidental because my wife is a huge Man United fan. And um, when, when, we, uh, when we entered into the sponsorship, I never really had a huge interest in Premier League. I, I did have an interest in Arsenal for a couple of years when I lived in London as a youngster, but it, was, it wasn't as fanatical as, say, my Western Bulldogs um, um, uh, supporting that I had as a child growing up in, in Melbourne. Um, so when we took the sponsorship and I started getting a lot more involved with the club, I was the chief commercial officer of our Australian business at the time. Um, and obviously my wife had an interest. You know, my son was starting to follow Man United as a four or five-year-old. Um, I, took a, I took more of an interest in it, Trent, and it's, you know, you talk about high performance. I think our opportunity as a professional service firm to go into a club like that, you know, technically one of the most successful sporting clubs in the world, and to understand their culture and their DNA um, has just been one amazing experience, Trent. And, you know, we, you know, I do a lot of work with our leadership teams and our clients around the world. We often ask Man United to to come and present, to come and share their stories, even from C-suite, you know, to ask their CFO, their chief legal, legal officer, you know, their, uh, their chief head of talent to come and talk. Uh, it's a, a marvellous insight into their culture and their DNA. And you start to realise the more you spend time with, with Man United as, a, as an organisation, you start to realise that, you know, their, their culture within their organisation is very special as well. There's a lot of pride. Um, around excellence yeah. and around not not settling for mediocrity. So, uh, so yeah, I must say the sponsorship's been a lot of fun, Trent, and um, our clients have enjoyed it as well, which has been great. I can imagine the box would be fun too at the games. That'd be um, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, that's it's a lot a really, of really uh, really good point you made, Jace, which is, you know, you know, I, we actually at Boom we worked with a lot of um, high-profile professional sporting teams from AFL to NRL, um, and you do see there's a really strong link between high performance sports and business. When you think about some of these elements that you touched on, the leadership, culture, you know, um, mindset, you know, there's a really strong link there. And I think that's, that's part of the uh, purpose of the podcast, Jason, is to sort of make that link, you know, and we, we talk a lot about master coaching and um, looking for those pockets of excellence uh, across business and sports. Cause there is a really, there's a lot to learn from athletes is there a leadership philosophy that you believe in or follow that's independent of that, or is it all interlinked? Your leadership yep. philosophy is interlinked with the Aon United leadership philosophy. Yeah, so we, we have what we call, um, uh, you know, obviously Aon United, the way we show up to clients and bring all of our capability, you know, to clients. But really the ethos and the philosophy that sits behind that, and this is a, 
Now, I've had the privilege of working for the same global CEO for the last 15 years um, since he joined us. So our founder, um, who founded Aon, stepped aside 15 years ago and, and put our current CEO, a gentleman called Greg Case, in the CEO role. And, you know, his sound bites have been totally consistent over that period. And, you know, the two key sound bites that I always hear from him is, number one, you know, let's continue to deliver Aon United. Let's show up seamlessly for our clients and bring the best capabilities of our firm to clients. The second one, which is the most profound for me, Trent, and this comes back to relationship equity and karma, is Greg always says, if you can't help a client, help a colleague, help a client. Mm. Okay. And that's really where this, you know, client first ethos, this philosophy has really come about. And it wraps around it wraps around Aon United. So if I reach out to Greg and uh, and ask for help on a client, I'd like to introduce him to uh, to a CEO or a CFO or an important relationship. He'll always reach out and he'll say yes, and he'll often say he'll laugh and smile and say, "Yeah, I, I, I work for you. You know, I, I, the strategy's set. So I'm here to help you to help our team members, to help our colleagues, to bring the best of the firm to our clients. And I, I think you know that." You know, being in service to others mindset of great leaders, I think, is what really makes certain companies stand apart from uh, from their competitors, Trent. So as you sort of dig into the, you know, I guess the cultural DNA of our firm, there's there's a very focused client first ethos around helping clients. And if you can't help the client, then help a colleague, help a client. And, uh, you know, I think I think about that every day and think, am I helping people? If people reach out and say, hey, Jason, have a cup of coffee with you. Or, or, hey, I, I saw a presentation. Can I meet you? Can we catch up? I, I think it's really, um, it's really up to us to show up and help those people and, and, and meet with them and get, put some relationship equity into, in, in, into the, uh, the relationship itself because we may need those people and they may need us moving forward. So, you know, I think when senior leaders behave in that way and make themselves more available and more present for, for the workforce to engage, that's how you really accelerate the culture in your organisation by showing up, making yourself available to to others. And you've got to buy in. You've got to buy into that culturally, don't you, Jason? Like that's the thing is a such a large workforce that you've got to buying into that um, the Aon United way. Uh, that's a big job, isn't it? So you have to have a lot of role models role modelling this behaviour that you're talking about. It is absolutely, absolutely, Trent. And, you know, for a senior leader like myself, you know, I, I remember um, a, couple of, um, a couple of our operating committee saying to me, Jason, leverage and scale, leverage and scale what you're doing. So there's no point in having one or two effective salespeople in your global workforce. You've got to have hundreds. You've got to have thousands. Yeah, so yeah, the key yeah. point there is, you know, if, you're, if, if you want people to, to, to role play the best um, sales leaders in your organisation, uh, not everyone gets the physical opportunity to see them in action. So how do you leverage and scale that and share best practice? And so we do that often by, we've set up a concept of what we call a multinational best practice call every, every month around the world, where we pick four case studies of four clients where we've either won a new client, retained a client, or sold additional capability to a client, and we'll get colleagues to come onto the call, and they get four slides in 10 minutes, that's it, to articulate their Aon United story about how they brought the best of the firm to, to either retaining or winning or growing. And, and what that does for us, we record it, we put it on our intranet, and it gets looked at by thousands of right. colleagues. And we have colleagues coming back to us saying, can, can I come on your, on your best practice call? Can I share my case study? And that's, mm. for me, that's the power of leveraging and scaling best practice trend. So it's okay to have great sales leaders or great CEOs, but I think the, the, the true power is how do you leverage and scale down through the organisation to really reach everyone so they can see what best practice looks like and then they can try and replicate it themselves. Oh, brilliant. That, yeah, that's your fifth P there, Jason. Proof. <laughs> yeah, proof, that's right. <laughs> proof. Give me proof. And that's to be a lot of salespeople are looking for, for mentorship, for for new ideas, you know, particularly the high performers, they're look, always looking for an edge. You know, yeah, they, they, under, they understand the fundamentals. They do those very, very well, but they're always looking for an edge. And I think that's important that you're sharing that best practice. 
That's, um, that's a fantastic example, actually. Yeah, just um, just one observation, Trent, is um, about, about 10 years ago, 2009, I think it was, I was uh, heading up our sales team in Australia for our corporate business. I was enjoying it, but I wanted an edge. I wanted to try and be able to be more effective than the salesperson at the next competitor. And so I took a different approach. And, you know, you're talking about high performance and athletes. And I actually went and hired an AFL conditioning coach as my, as my mentor. Hmm. Um, and what he taught me around, um, you know, discipline, around routine, around, you know, good nutrition, mindfulness, uh, because he'd he practiced mindfulness with, with some of the teams he'd worked with. Yep. For me, that was a fundamental moment. And I guess mm. I've never been a professional athlete, Trent, and uh, you know, not all of us have. But um, I think getting exposed to someone who had coached professional athletes and being able to learn some of the habits of how professional athletes lead and behave, uh, it taught me a lot. And it's really interesting. When I only left London in December, early December last year. And one of my colleagues came up to me and he actually said to me, and I'd worked with him for three or four years. And he said, Jason, he said, can I make an observation? He said, um, I've pointed out to a few of my colleagues that um, you're very well practiced and rehearsed and prepared for all of the opportunities you have when you come and present or when you come and share something with us. And I try to remind my staff um, that that is what elite performance is always uh, about. It's about it's about consistently performing at a high level every time you show up. And I thought, wow, that's a nice compliment. But when I think about it, Trent, it comes back to the skills that I was taught by my coach who had coached professional athletes. So I think your comment around the connection between business and professional athletes and the habits of both, I think you'll find that there's remarkable similarities in successful CEOs and successful athletes, and I think they share a lot of common traits, Trent, to be honest. Yeah, they certainly do. I'm guilty of using a lot of sporting analogies, and I know that that doesn't resonate with everybody. But if you think about an artist, a musician, you know, they spend less than 5% of their time performing. The rest is spent rehearsing. So it's back to your point around preparation. You know, to deliver a, a performance, whether it's on the sporting field or it's an artistic performance or you're a heart surgeon or, or a concert pianist, you know, the amount of time that goes into your preparation and your rehearsal and your, your practice far outweighs the time that you're performing. And I think that's a big different, a shift. A lot of sales and business people don't understand. They show up, they work, they're 48 weeks a year, whatever the, whatever the timing is. Um, and they think that's enough when they need to be doing you know, a lot of elite um, coaches will talk about how the off pitch, you know, living an elite lifestyle on and off the pitch or what you do off the pitch is far more important um, because that's where you're spending most of your time. Um, so there are some great links between not just high performance sports, but all activities that require, you know, that elite mindset. It could be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> you know, they think differently. They have a different mindset, but they're being, they've learned that somewhere which is the power of mentoring. You went and engaged an AFL strength and conditioning coach and that helped you in business. You know, um, great, that's a really great uh, takeaway. We can get knowledge from everywhere, um, but you've got to be proactive enough to go and seek it, don't you? Which, which is to, to your point earlier. Yeah, you do. And some, often when I'm, you know, I've been the last four years uh, in the UK, I'm working there, I've been mentoring what we call our millennial group. Um, which are our up and cunning, uh, up and coming, up and cunning. They need to be cunning. Um, Gen Z, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, different and, world uh, for them, isn't it? It is. And what I often say to them, and in fact, I've actually got a, I've actually got a presentation I'm giving them um, this evening. So it's a WebEx. It's with twenty of our uh, high uh, performing millennials, and it's around how to deliver a professional presentation. But one of the the key messages I'll be giving them tonight is, is practice mm. and the importance of practice and how critical it is to, to perfect your message and get it right. So, you know, the other message I'll be giving them tonight, career, the, the, the career message I'll be giving them is be very selfish with your professional development. It should be the most important thing that as a young person you focus on as you work through an organisation. Make sure you're doing the things you need to do to improve and expand your your skills and capabilities. Mm. And sometimes you'll yeah. get that from your organisation. Sometimes you won't. And in that particular instance with me, I felt I wasn't getting enough 
from the organisation. So I thought I'll go externally and see what I can find. And I was fortunate enough to find uh, to find uh, that conditioning coach I was referring to. I think that's a great point. And we've got we've got access to things through the organisations that might, might hire us. But if you really have that, want to go to the next level, you have to look externally, you know, and you've got to be continually investing in your own. The number one influencer is always you. That's the boom language. So you've got to be investing in the influencer, which is your knowledge, you know, uh, mentorship, um, self-education. You know, all those things become really important. And you meet these people, don't you, Jace, along the journey? You know, they're just hungry. They have a thirst for more. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. A absolutely. It's quite interesting. I, uh, I had an opportunity to work with our chairman of our European business the last four years. Um, he's an Italian, Italian, Italian gentleman called Carlo, Carlo Claverino, and he has been incredibly successful at identifying businesses, acquiring them, integrating them into our organisation. And he said to me once, I think it was in our first board meeting, he said, you know, when you look at successful country managers or successful leaders, we've all got to be a little bit crazy. We've all got to believe in being able to achieve something that others think may not be achievable. And I think he's right. I think, you know, the great business leaders set goals and aspirations that most people would think are not realistic, but um, you've got to have a dream or a goal and you've, you've got to aim for that goal. So I learned a lot from our chairman and um, yeah, continue, to, continue to enjoy working with him because he's, uh, he's quite an inspirational character to work with because he's always trying to get people to aim higher, which I think is a, a wonderful leadership quality. Um, there is a balance too, though, Jason, isn't there? Like you see people that are unbelievably driven, yet it can come at a cost to their lives, their families, uh, their health. There is a balance, which comes back to mindfulness, doesn't it? Like, um, you know, you can work on becoming more successful in your profession, but are you taking care of the other elements that, you know, so you have more of a holistic way of operating. Um, but I know that you're big on mindfulness. Yep. and how important that is to performance. So what, what do you do anything specifically to help develop that side of the way that you're operating? Yeah, I, I do. I do, Trent. So um, there's a few things I do in that space. Um, and I think if just quickly going back to, you know, some of the, the work-life balance practices that sort of keep us healthy and keep us, you know, keep us in good mental health. I think everyone, you know, tries to practice that formula, you know, of, you know, exercise, hydration, sleep, and balancing time with work and family it's all become a little bit um disjointed in the last 12 months through through COVID-19 and you know one of our presidents said to me recently he said we're not working from home we're sleeping at work these days which I find quite funny but it's true to some extent because we're spending so much time in front of our computers but for me um mindfulness is critical and what I've found is, you know, and I've done you know, courses in meditation like most of us have and, you know, yoga. Um, but what I've found is it's, it's very hard to be able to practice it over very long periods of time. The mind wanders. So what I've found worked for me in the last four to five years is I just practice uh, yoga every day, every morning for about 10 minutes when I first wake up. So, you know, if you have a look at a cat, when a cat wakes up, what do they first do? They stretch. Mm. Uh, and there's a reason for that. So, you know, it gets the blood flowing, it energizes you, um, it gets you breathing properly. And I'm a big believer that the yoga routine I use every day and the breathing that I have to do to perfect the moves, that breathing then carries me through the day and it makes me more mindful, more relaxed, more present um, and more available for others. And I can tell you in days that I don't do the yoga and I try, ne I try to never miss it now. Um, as, as much as I can, I try to do it as soon as I wake up because mindfulness really is what centers us. And, and I think it also makes us realize, you know, what are the important parts of our lives that we, we can't sacrifice, you know, like time with family, like sleep, and of course, you know, nu nutrition and overall health. So, so for me, mindfulness is really critical, uh, Trent, and it's an important ingredient for for me working through the day and, and, and being able to, you know, show up and be available for others. When you're thinking about how do we, you know, hearing you share that, you know, how do we stay present in a fast paced world? Because that to me is where the challenges come, you know, and being able to be, we're moving quickly. We have to adapt. Uh, we're changing the way that we're doing business. Thanks to events like COVID um, the stress levels go up. So that in, 
it increases the need to, to practice mindfulness. And that can mean different things to different people, can't it? It can, absolutely. I, th I think, uh, you know, different people find different ways to, to effectively try and, um, and, and achieve that mindfulness. You know, for me, it's yoga. And for others, it may be meditation. For some, it might be walking the dog in the morning. Um, you know, we've all got different techniques, but I think um, encouraging your, your, your teams to be mindful and you know, trying to teach them mindfulness where you can. And in our Leading Aon United course that we run, we do a specific mindfulness session um, over the, the few days we, we do with people. You know, we, we, we teach them how to meditate. We introduce them to, to, to yoga and presence um, and really try to, to give them a taste of what can be achieved if you can get your, your body in, into a mindful state. Um, and I think mm. it's, uh, it, it, once, you, yeah. once you can do it well, it can, it, can, it can provide competitive advantage. Absolutely. And it's not for everyone, is it, Jason? I think about getting into that peak, peak state. People have different ways of doing it, but it's not for meditation. Mindfulness is not for everyone. No, it's um, it, it's it, not for the it, average, Jason. Not for the average. <laughs> it's, it's probably not for the average. <laughs> not for the that's average. That's right. That's right, Trent. But I must say, I must say, as a sales professional, if you can be more present than your competitor in how you engage a, pr a prospective client and be available for them, be totally in the moment in listening, you know, probing, questioning, and listening carefully. And reacting and responding well to them. Now they'll come away from that exchange going, "Wow, you know that 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 person really tried to understand my needs and empathise with me, and and is going to really try and craft a, a relevant solution." I think mindfulness plays a huge role in being able to optimise your presence in personal interactions. And um, I see lots and lots of people in business just not show up and do that. You know, they've, they've got their phone in their hand. They're looking at their device. They're thinking of other things. And um, yeah, I think the team that shows up and is the most present normally wins, Trent. Couldn't agree more. That showing up reference you've used, was that a skip a skip soundbite? The a showing skip, up? A skip soundbite. Oh, hang on. We'll, we'll edit that out. Your mentor, was his name Skip? Oh no, I've got a I've got another mentor in the US called Skip. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you so do. He, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, he's he's a current mentor of mine, Skip. Yeah, so he's one of the original founders of Aon. Wow, that's a pretty handy mentor. The original yeah, founder right. of Aon's your mentor. He's great. You know what he says on every call, Trent? He rings me up and says, "Hey, Jason, it's Skip. You know, Skip's in his seventies now. I think he still loves working. He deals with some of our largest clients around the world." He says, "Hey, pal. He says, uh, now listen, I'm here. I'm here for you. Give me a call anytime." I'm here to help. He says that every single call. And this is go. one of the founders go. of our organization. How good's that? Brilliant. That's a brilliant. Look, and it's just uh, they are worth their weight in gold. If gold is still valuable, I'm not sure. Um, worth their weight in crypto. <laughs> a good mentor <laughs> at the moment. Exactly. They're just so valuable. But a lot of people don't know how to find a mentor. They, you know, they can be all around us. Or maybe we have to work a little bit harder to find them. And we can find mentorship through reading, through self-education, through doing courses. But yeah, I think just having that personal mentor um, to help you, you know, navigate or just be a sounding board is so valuable, so valuable. So that's amazing that you're working with the founder of Aon as one of your mentors. That's crazy. So no wonder you're successful, Jason. You've got a, you've got a definitely a different way of operating. You know, the mindfulness journey and the, some of the things that you think more deeply about but where does that come from where, yeah. where, where did you start that journey yeah I, I think I uh, I think I really I really started that um, effectively when when I started in business and for whatever reason I had a I guess a desire just to help people to be helpful to be useful and and I think you know when you switch into that service to others mode and try to be helpful as a service provider um what I realized through my, through my coach was that the more mindful you are and the more effective you can practice mindfulness, um, as a result of that, uh, you can be more present with your clients and you can, you can help them more effectively. And I, I guess I had a real interest in that sort of emanating out of the time with my coach and, you know, he introduced me to, to some of the concepts around, you know, deeper concepts around mindfulness, like consciousness and um, you know, being able to be more, uh, more, more present, more aware, and um, and then really just trying to practice that on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, to be honest, Trent. So 
I must say, uh, you know, the mindfulness is important. And, and what I've tried to do now through, I've had the, the huge benefit of having access to some great mentors in my career. You know, some I've gone out and sought and some have offered to mentor me. And Skip is a great example. He's a, a marvellous mentor and a friend and I, I really value his interactions. Um, but what I try to do is pay it back, Trent. So yeah. at, the moment, at the moment, I mentor on a global basis half a dozen people. Um, we, we have about 45 minutes to an hour a month um, with, each, with each of those mentees. And, you know, some people would say, wow, that's too much time. You know, that's, you know, that's six, almost six hours a month. When you think about it, it's actually not that much time because if you're working a typical working week, it's a small percentage of the month. But what you're doing is you're giving back. You're giving these younger people great insights and learnings where you'd like to think so, so they can be more effective. And, you know, what I say to the people I mentor is you make sure you pay it forward as well when you progress in your career um, and people reach out to you and say, can, you know, can, you, can you mentor me? So I think the other benefit I've had in the last couple of years is I've tried to leverage and scale my mentoring. So, for example, in EMEA in Europe, we have this group called the Millennial Group, and it's, it consists of over 20 people in this group. And we have three coaches, so we've got about six students each. So what we're now doing through mentoring those people through, through our Millennial Program, or what we call our Next Generation Program now in EMEA, is they're getting the benefit of, of, of a senior executive and we, the executive, we're not mentoring one person, but we're mentoring six. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, once again, the benefits of leveraging and scaling your experience um, yeah, through, through that mentoring, uh, through that mentoring mechanism, Trent. So now to me, I think mentoring is so important. The other thing, Trent, is when you listen really carefully to the mentees, you actually start to learn what's going on around the organisation, right? You get hints, tips, cues, who's hot, who's not. Now, this is shared in confidence, but it enables you to just build your overall awareness of the health of the organisation if you've chose your, chosen your mentees carefully and they're spread across the business. And so it gives you, a, it's almost reverse mentoring, to be honest, where they, they're also teaching you at the same time. So I find mentoring works both ways and um, it's a critical part of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, it does sound like there is a coaching culture built into that Aeon United DNA that you're talking about, that that culture is ingrained, you know, and it comes through people like you believing in it, demonstrating it, teaching others, which obviously then, you know, has gives that coaching culture the ability to leverage and scale properly. So it's a great, um, that's a really good takeaway as well, that coaching, you know, we got, and you've got to make time for coaching. I do talk to a lot of different organisations and ask their senior leaders, how important is coaching? Oh, absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical how much time do you invest in coaching well yeah i could probably should be doing more of it <laughs> nowhere near enough it's got to be built into the culture doesn't it the culture it does um, and that's for when i hear you speak i can that that resonates with me it feels very genuine um and of course you've had some great role models that have helped you on your way as well but you're right that ability to have that hyper awareness to understand what's going on in your organization uh, means that you need to be having those conversations with a whole cross-section of people which makes you in a way more mindful, but more aware of what's going on. I think that then uh, allows or gives you the ability to make better decisions. It does, smarter absolutely. Decisions, smarter decisions. Yeah. Absolutely, no doubt. Um, so there's some great points. We've had covered a lot of ground here today and I've, I've enjoyed it. I hope we're translating that across to our listeners. You're not the average CEO. You're certainly not the average insurance salesman, Jason. <laughs> there's a lot of nuggets here that i'm really uh, i'm really pleased we're able to get out jason my final question for you what makes you quirky as a leader well i, I think you can probably tell trent that um there's a little bit of quirkiness uh, around my optimism um you know as i said i'm a sales professional um first and foremost you know so some people would say i'm a rainbow a bit of a rainbow chaser is what some of my colleagues have called me over the years. But I must say that, you know, sometimes you've got to try and strive to achieve what others feel could be impossible. Chasing rainbows. Love and uh, so some of my colleagues say, oh, you're chasing a rainbow there, Jason. I said, well, look, if you jump on the Aon United bus with us, you can come and chase the rainbow too. And, you know, lo and behold, <laughs> lo, lo and behold, lo and behold, you know, we've actually, 
we've actually found a few rainbows over the years. And what I've found is that, you know, when we are optimistic and we do set high standards and goals that some would, you know, some would consider unachievable, when we reach those goals, you know, when we win that prospect that someone said we couldn't win, that it was impossible to win that relationship, that's what accelerates the power of, of Aon United, Trent. And it could give you a good example. Good, good. Give you a good example. We, we, we just were successful in being appointed to a multinational client um, in Europe and our largest competitor had been their broker for 20 years. Wow. And um, we did a little part of this relationship, but not a lot. Our largest competitor um, did the, the majority of the work. And even the client didn't think that they were going to move to us before they commenced the RFP. And so what we did was we listened carefully to this organization's strategy. Um, we had a lot of pre-engagement with their C-suite to understand where they were trying to get to. They were huge believers in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we knew that was critical. They were trying to you know, really optimize their cost structure into the future. So we understood all the triggers, but we put together a diverse team and we delivered an A on United value proposition and um, after we were successful in winning, I asked one of our colleagues, because I led the pitch, I asked one of our colleagues to do the debrief because we always like someone to do the debrief that wasn't Curious, Jason, curious. We get very curious. And this, this, this colleague um, did the debrief. And you know what the client said? He said, I'm so impressed you've come to do the debrief despite the fact you've won because we hired you because we felt you were the most professional. And mm. the fact that you've now turned up to understand why you won only reconfirms the decision as to why we appointed your organisation. And by the way, the others who were unsuccessful haven't even asked to do a debrief. There you go. There you go. You know, I think listening is absolutely key. But back to the story, back to the to the to the key crux story, Trent. What happened in that win was we were chasing a bit of a rainbow because even the client didn't think we could win. But through listening carefully, showing up, being present being mindful, um, understanding the C-suite and connecting our value proposition to the C-suite um, and then being able uh -huh. to present in conviction. At the end of the day, we, we won hands down. And those colleagues of, of mine that were involved in that process, and there were many of us, there were about 30, what that's just done is it's rapidly accelerated the belief around Aon United and the DNA of our firm. And so now we move on to the next one and we rep replicate proof. And we, the proof. we replicate and scale the experience time and time again. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into, uh, you know, into probably the quirky side of my personality. Optimism and resilience become critical because we don't win all the time, Trent. I reckon my lifetime success rate on this sort of activity is about 35%. So you've got to You've got to obviously accept not winning, but at the same time, if you understand why you didn't win, you lift your success rate over time. Geez, we've had a big win there, Jason. We have found the title of our podcast, Chasing Rainbows with Jason Disborough. <laughs> that that's got to be that's got to be the title. Um, uh, that aligning the value proposition to the politics, the chasing rainbows mentality, which is, you know, optimism and resilience is at the core of that. It sounds a little bit fluffy chasing rainbows, but the big wins are the big things that are outside, way outside your comfort zone are the most rewarding. Um, and you've, you know, if you're an elite athlete, the best athletes will always take half chances. Absolutely. You know, you've got Absolutely. to take your half chances, but again, that's the vision. Love the chasing rainbows. How do you chase the rainbows? Are you on a bus? Is it an Aon United bus? You're all on chasing those rainbows? Because I would like, well, you, I'd like to get on that bus. Well, one thing's for sure, we all we all do it together. We're all in. So when we make really? the decision, do we go or not not go for this opportunity? When we select the team, and we make sure the team's as diverse as we possibly can, because diversity in thought always produces a better outcome. Trent, in, in yep. what you put forward, it's critical, uh, and being inclusive of the team as well is critical to listen to everyone's ideas. But I think when we all commit, we do get on that bus. When we make that decision to go, that's when the whole magic of Aon United starts to happen. Oh, I love it. I'm excited about Aon United as well. So I need to learn more there, which we will do at some at some point. Um, you and I off off the podcast. Um, but Jason, that um, that might actually that might be the name of your first book, Chasing Rainbows. <laughs> that's a, actually that's a reasonable title. Jason, 
absolute gold coming through today, which is what we find at the bottom of a rainbow. Jason, I really appreciate your time today. Some wonderful insights. Uh, you are not the average um, CEO, that's for sure, or insurance salesman. Um, and thanks very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Trent. It's been great. Uh, been great talking with you, and uh, really good to connect. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Trent is the Managing Director of Boom Sales, Australia's number one sales training and development company. If you'd like to accelerate your sales growth and profitability, go to boomsales.com.au.